0: Welcome to the podcast of data and analytics in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have got David Fibot. David is the data science manager at the DAODA. And Downer is a leading integrated service provider in the civil engineering industry of Australia and New Zealand. It's one of the top 100 company and listed in the ASS stock exchange. David will share with us a lot of things about the Train DNA project, which is a purpose-built data analytic platform being used to help the New South Wales government and the Sydney train the prolonged lifetime of the train asset that is owned by the Department of Transport or the Sydney train. Apart from all the amazing stuff that he does with the train DNA, which you will find out in, more in detail, but really the key takeaway for you is that if you are in the asset-heavy industry or if you are in the industry where you have been collecting a lot of data over the time, But actually, you're still not quite sure what to do with it and how to use it. Have a listen to what David shared with us and borrow the idea from him in utilizing your data asset, i.e. number one, how and why to prolong the asset lifetime and number two, how to generate value from the data and provide as a value added service. This is really the episode that you really do not want to miss, especially how the industry and the company are fully utilizing and embedding, incorporating the IoT into building a platform and provide the value-added service. If you have any question for me or David, please feel free to send us an email or voice message. I hope you enjoy well, David, thank you so much for coming on to the Analytics Show podcast. I'm super, super, duper excited to have you here to talk about some really, really exciting stuff. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting to be here.
0: <laughs> That's great. Now, let's start this thing light a little bit. So now from my research, I learned that you have a degree in physics and applied mathematics and also a doctorate in artificial intelligence back in the 90s. So, You know, all this crazy stuff already before we do. Now, I happen to work with a lot of mathematicians and actuaries in the early stage of my career. I think that you guys are great data scientists. Now, in your own words, how do you think your academic background prepare you for your current career?
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I'm the sort of person that really loves to learn. And growing up, I really enjoyed playing with, you know, Rubik's puzzles and I used to collect lots of those. Worked quite hard in high school, especially the later part of high school. So much so that my mother would often tell me to come out of my room and watch TV because I was spending too much time studying and she'd often talk to her friends and they had the opposite problem. They'd have to tell people stop watching TV and go to their room and study. And when I was actually in year 12, I couldn't decide whether I wanted to do science or engineering. So I decided to do both. I ended up doing a a double degree because there were just too many subjects that I wanted to do. I've always had a very strong passion for learning and for problem solving and especially in the fields of science and engineering. And then I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship and do my PhD in artificial intelligence. It's a really good area to do a PhD in because there were no external dependencies for me. All I needed to do was come up with the ideas and program away on a computer. I didn't have to rely on any external sort of surveys or equipment that might break down or anything like that. So I ended up getting my PhD done fairly quickly in a little, little over two years so much so that I think I caught my supervisor a bit by surprise and he hadn't had time to find a marker, so it took a little while to get the final draft marked properly. But in terms of my academic background preparing me for my career, I certainly think my time at university helped me to cultivate my research skills. also helped me in terms of thinking outside of the box and learning various skills that were very helpful, such as programming and learning about other tools that are you know off the shelf, even tools like Excel, and certainly, my engineering background has helped a lot with the project that I'm working on now actually, because we're we're talking about the maintenance of trains. And so when we're talking to the engineers and they say, we want to understand the health of the capacitor, and if understanding the health of capacitor means you need to understand, the rate at which is discharging and how that corresponds to the resistance around it in the circuit. Having that electrical engineering background helps similarly with, you know, HVAC units or air conditioning units, understanding how they work means that I can talk sort of more the language of the engineers that maintain the trains and and design the trains. And certainly during my PhD, I started to get a really good handle on things like solving optimization problems, data analytics, working with large data or, or large code bases and manipulating data efficiently. Up until my PhD, they'd been fairly small sort of coding projects. So that certainly helped with that. But I think some of the things that university, I felt, didn't really prepare me for very much, especially as an undergrad, they didn't really prepare me for the difficulty in the real world of trying to define the right problem often as an undergrad you're given a problem to solve but in the real world you have to discover the problem and it has to be the right problem that can provide value it has to be a problem that's solvable and you have to have the right data for it things like that also working with large range of people from senior stakeholders that might be sponsoring a project to the end users that might be using a project that you're working on defining business cases trying to sell an idea and bringing people along with you on that journey and all the communication skills that are required to communicate with a large range of people from stakeholders to end users getting people to have confidence in any insights and things like that i think from an undergraduate perspective those sorts of skills which i think are really important and really useful in the sorts of projects that we're working on you know don't really sort of you don't really get much exposure to that i think
0: i couldn't agree any more on that i think the sort of skill set is actually so important in the real world and i felt that a lot of time the way that we are trained in the university for the bachelor is a bit for what we did in the engineering or IT is could be too technical. However, in the real world, the mix of the soft skill is so important. It just sort of like remind me in a way that the way that perhaps we need to revolution the academic is that perhaps we need to start incorporating some of the skill set, um, understanding how to deal with people, um, different stakeholders. What I am also curious to know, though, is that the doctorate that you have in the artificial intelligence back in the day, how much do you think it has changed in the way that how that subject is taught? Especially that I presume the computing power that you have got back at that time, it does not sufficient enough to be able to do a lot of the things that we are doing these day, but the theory is certainly there. I mean, the, the theory of the AI has been there for decades and decades, but it is where we are at with the computing power, allow us to put those things in practice. So an analogy that I, I would use is, I, I remember vividly in the early days, some of the actuaries told me back in the 1970s, they used to use pen and paper, with rulers to do all the calculation, which I cannot quite imagine. I presume that is the case for you? (laughs) Well, I didn't have to
1: use pen and paper, uh, (laughs) thankfully, at least not for the programming part. So for me, so I did my PhD sort of in the mid to late 90s and I actually had seven PCs in my room, in my bedroom at home, I was still living at home. And I wrote, You know, they weren't the open source libraries that are available now. So this was all, you know, writing from first principles in C++, and I had to write all the neural network code from scratch, the transform algorithms, the the propagation algorithms, and the genetic algorithms, wrote them all from scratch. And then because computing power was limited, I actually set up my own network at home using the old, you know, coaxial cables and designed it in such a way that the problem could be split across these seven computers. And that sort of helped to reduce the training times. Fortunately, the types of problems that I was working on were the sorts of problems that could be split up. A lot of character recognition type problems where you could split up different letters on different computers to sort of speed up time. But yeah, look, they're the sorts of problems that would solve very, very quickly using today's technology. And you could start focusing less on the internal mechanics of the neural network and the architecture of the neural network and start looking at sort of broader ways in which they can sort of you know interact with each other and things like that so yeah definitely uh definitely things have changed quite a lot since i was doing it
0: you were doing parallel processing already back in the old uni day but i wanted to say seven computers that's crazy i have to say so mom and dad were quite supportive though in to get you seven computers. (laughs) do all this crazy thing for your PhD?
1: Well, actually, I ended up buying all my computers myself because my parents, no one in my family really knew anything about computers at the time. Yeah. And I was on a scholarship. So sometimes they weren't all top of the range computers. Some of them were secondhand. So I'd sort of scrounge, get my hands on whatever I could get. And I had my own personal computer, which I spent a lot of money on for the time. I remember spending $900 Yeah, I spent $900 on 16 megabytes of RAM. At the time, most computers had 4 megabytes, and I spent $900 on 16 megabytes, which was pretty good at the time. And I also used to bring my computer home from uni because the university provided a computer. And then I had my scholarship, which helped me sort of pay for other sort of bits and pieces, and I used to build them and and connect them all up.
0: Right. Now, talking a lot about the programming, that sort of like also reminds me that I think – programming is probably one of the challenges that many mathematicians or the engineer who don't necessarily come from the IT background, or even though some of those people who come from the IT background, is the challenge that they need to overcome to become a data scientist. Now, do you agree that a lot of these people, they decided to pursue their career in the data science, that is probably the thing that they need to get, be prepared for and also need to be comfortable in doing?
1: I think that's a good question. I think it depends on a few things it probably depends on your definition of data science but also I think it probably depends on the complexity of both the problem you're trying to solve and the complexity of the required solution so if you think about some of the things that a data scientist does so in terms of preparing data and visualizing data doing maybe doing some pattern recognition machine learning text analytics sharing insights and generating reports You can actually do quite a lot of those things using Excel. And there are more and more drag and drop type tools available now that can help with some of these types of problems. So you can actually do more now without code than ever before. Having said that, though, I think the more tools that you have at your disposal as a data scientist, the better. And I actually think the most powerful tool is being able to program. You're not going to have the constraints and the limitations that other solutions are going to be providing. And for some types of complex problems, I don't think there's really any other way but to get your hands dirty and do some coding. And it's not just the coding that will help you with the sexy kind of AI, ML part, but the generation of scripts to interface with data, cleaning data, and you might need to automate a number of tasks. So being able to just at least do some level of programming, and, and a lot of it's actually not very difficult. You can do a lot with programming. Without having to learn very much, just a few sort of basic things, and you can achieve quite a lot. Right now, I mainly work in Python, but back in the day, especially when I was doing my PhD and in my early career, I was doing a lot of C++. But certainly, there's there's a lot of things that I wouldn't be able to do that I'm doing today unless I could
0: program. Yeah. Now I want to dwell that a little bit, considering because of the advance of the technology and also the tool set that we have got these days you touch on the a lot of the tools these days are very much just drag and drop and i think to some extent it is a great thing because it allows a lot more people to be it is a lot more accessible to a lot more people i suppose the question i have is that at the same time from your perspective from training and managing a team identifying the talent is that how do you then discover and identify who are the really great talent who really know how the things are working from and who can actually really get everything. Well, I wouldn't say every single component can work on every single component, but at least they know how to put the whole things together as opposed to you pull up a web page, drag and drop a couple of stuff, you call a model, you fine tune a little bit, what are you uh, data <laughs> scientist?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that the real skill set is being able to try and break down a problem and to understand it and to work out what that data flow needs to be and understand how the tools work. I think one of the dangers with using some of the tools that do a lot of things for you is that you need to kind of understand really what are the strengths and the weaknesses of those tools? What can they do? It's a bit like someone using a calculator and if they don't punch in the right numbers in the right order, they're going to get the wrong answer. It's easy to use and it gives you an answer really easily, but is it really the answer that you needed and do you really understand what you're doing with it? So I think the skill set, I mean, certainly if you come with a good set of programming skills, that's that's certainly very helpful. But I think it's really more that problem-solving ability that's really important. And I think if you've got an intelligent person who has the ability to solve complex problems and think through those steps. And even if they don't have a strong or any programming background, if they're willing to learn, I think they can pick it up pretty quickly. Because just as I said before, you can do a lot with a small amount of programming as opposed to someone who might know how to program, but if they're not programming efficiently or if they really can't understand some of the nuances or the edge cases, and they're trying to rush things through, they might be a good programmer, but they might not end up with a good result. So I think it's more that, that ability to solve complex problems and really understand what it is that you're trying to achieve and what it is that you have achieved.
0: <laughs> I agree. Now, currently, you are a data science manager at Downer. For some of the audience who may not necessarily be familiar with Downer, although it's a really big company, but because some people work in different uh, industries, briefly share with our audience a little bit about Downer and your role at Downer.
1: Yeah, sure. So yes, you're right. Dana is a very large organisation. There are around 55,000 employees in Australia and New Zealand. And they're effectively made up of quite a lot of smaller businesses, covering a wide range of activities So there's Spotless that does a lot of cleaning services of schools and hospitals. There's mining. There's a branch of Downer that works with defence. There's rolling stock services. There's actually a lot about Downer I don't know because it's just so big. And I've been there a little over two and a half years. But, yeah, it's a very big organisation. So I work in the rolling stock services division. And so that's basically dealing with anything on wheels. So that could be trams or trains. I don't know if Downer works with buses right now, but if buses were there, then they would be part of rolling stock services. And Downer actually has a very long history of building and maintaining rolling stock. For example, there was the EMD or the electromotive diesel engines that used to move across Australia. They had a site out in Bathurst that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, there's a large site out of Maryborough that does still exist, and there's Newport. In Sydney alone, Downer is responsible for 78 Waratah trains there's 24 SGT or the Sydney Greater Trains. And for both of those, Down has a contract of about 35 years. So they're very long contracts. There's about 35 millennium trains, and that's a 10-year contract. So these are long-term availability contracts, and they're all within Sydney or New South Wales. And that represents more than a thousand carriages or what we usually call them cars. There's also Yarra Trams in Melbourne. There's a partnership with Keolis there. And the tram network in Melbourne is the largest in the world. There's also a joint venture with Bombardier for trains in Perth. There's the Gold Coast Light Rail, which is also a Keolis joint venture. And very soon in Melbourne, there's going to be the HCMT, or the High Capacity Metro Trains, coming online. There's 65 trains there, but that could be extended out into 110. And that's another 35 year contract, so very long contracts. So there's lots of trains, both old and new. So the Millennium trains came out around the turn of the Millennium. And so Downer has quite an extensive experience in this space. So, as for me personally, so where do I fit into the grand scheme of things in my small little world? So, I'm the data science manager for the Rolling Stock Services. I've been at the business about two and a half years. Our main focus, has been on developing the TrainDNA platform, but we have been involved in other projects as well. But TrainDNA has certainly been the, the biggest part of what I do. I officially have two people reporting to me, but in reality, I'm often supervising quite a few others as well from different teams as different needs arise. The teams themselves are kind of a little bit fluid and people sort of move between them. I'm based in Brisbane, but my direct reports are based in Melbourne and Sydney, so we're spread out quite a lot. I used to do lots of travel before all the COVID restrictions, <laughs> but uh, obviously that's been cut down. So what does my team work on? So the TrainDNA project is quite a large project. It's made up of lots of different parts. So the data science team, if you like, we work on business rules. So so business rules is one of the things. An example of a really simple business rule might be generate an alert if a current coming out of a battery is more than three amps. Okay. But they could also be quite complex. Those business rules could be made up of an AI engine that's been analyzing six months worth of data and is going to make some kind of prediction on when something's going to fail in two weeks or something like that. So those business rules could be really simple, human-generated, logical sort of steps that an engineer tells you he wants, uh, or they could be quite complex. But we also work on a lot of algorithmic development which ultimately goes into those business rules. Also do a lot of screen design and dashboard design. So Power BI, so down is very much a Microsoft shop. So things are built on the Microsoft Azure tech stack. Uh, We work with Power BI for our presentation layer. We also do a lot of data engineering. So we work with unpacking data, processing data, moving it around between data lakes and SQL databases, things like that. So in a nutshell, that's kind of really what our team does. We also work very closely with other teams that also help pull trained DNA together. So there's a downer team in Perth that actually works on the data interfaces because we interface with a lot of different data sources. So they manage that. They also maintain the Azure tech stack that our algorithms and our screens or our presentation layer sits on. And they also manage our production environment. We also work very closely with the end users and the sponsors, so that's AMC, the Auburn Maintenance Centre in Sydney. So they maintain the trains. So we work very closely with them to try and define what the problem is that needs to be solved, what's the one that's gonna provide the most value, we have also worked with other external parties. We've worked with Deakin University for a couple of years. They specialize in quite complex AI algorithms and multi-agent approaches. So we've been working with them as well, and then they hand over their models to us, and then we maintain them. So that's, in a nutshell, that's kind of the trained DNA team and sort of where we fit into it. that and who we work closely with.
0: Now, for my research, I understand that this trained DNA project is built from the scratch by you and Downer uh, working with the New South Wales Department of Transport. It seems to be quite a revolution, pretty much everything is built from the scratch. Now, without revealing the trade secret, what do you think from the business outcome perspective is that why the New South Wales Department of Transport came to Downer, and say we need to build this, and how is this gonna help us, or, or maybe the other way around? What is the biggest, biggest business outcome that is achieving is being achieved out from this one?
1: Yeah, sure, sure. So the drive for trained DNA came from within Downer, with the main goal of trying to provide value to Downer based on the data that it has. So I'll just give you a little bit more background. There are currently 340 million train journeys every year in Sydney, and our goal, obviously, is to make sure that these trains move around safely and effectively and to provide the service to the customers that they expect. Now, we've been collecting a lot of data, and we want to turn that data into actionable insights. So we want to improve the reliability of the trains. We want to minimise service incidents. We want to anticipate when trains will fail. How much maintenance are they going to require? How much downtime will they require? We want to be able to generate a better or optimised maintenance plan. So it's much better to be able to predict when a train is going to fail than have to have it fail suddenly and then bring it in on an ad hoc basis with lots of disruption to the network. We want to be able to manage corrective costs and push out overhauls. So, for example, you might have an air conditioning unit or a HVAC unit that's designed to last Eight years, and so you'd expect that at the end of that eight years, you're going to have to overhaul it and replace it, or, or do significant maintenance on it. If we can extend the life of that air conditioning unit to maybe make it last ten years or fifteen years, then that's one of the goals of Train DNA. But also, we wanted to make it a generic platform so that it could easily be applied to other assets. So we made a very conscious decision to try not to use the word train within the sort of underlying architecture, the software architecture, if you like, as much as possible. So really, it's just a a platform that's going to bring in lots of data, do some analysis on it and try and provide some insights. But the train DNA, the train asset is just the asset that that happens to be working on at the moment. So as I said earlier, large amounts of data and then the challenge is to try and extract value from it. So to give you a bit of an idea about that data, so we talk about two types of data when we're talking about train data. We're talking about data that comes from the train itself and data of the train. So data from the train is data that is generated on the train and transmitted by the train. Data of the train is data that's collected outside the train as the train's going past. So there could be wayside equipment or equipment next to the tracks. that might be you know, listening to the train to see if there are any unusual noises, or there might be cameras that are checking to see if it needs to be cleaned or looking for dents or blocked vents and things like that. So some examples of data that comes from the train So we've got what we call TOS data, T-O-S, that stands for Train Operating System Data. And every 10 minutes, we get 30,000 signals from every train. Those 30,000 signals are made up of lots of the things that are going on on the train at the moment. So for example, they could be battery currents, they could be voltages, they could be brake cylinder pressure. They could be how fast is the train going, what are the GPS coordinates, just a whole bunch of engineering signals that help us get a feel for what's going on on the train at the moment. There's also what we call LED or logged event data, And that's data that is made up of events. So every time the train stops and doors open and close, there's an event that recognises that a door has opened and then the door has closed again. Every time the driver does something in the cab, there's an event that's captured for that. There's also alerts that are part of that. So if, if something's getting too hot or something's not behaving the way it should be behaving, then there can be an alert generated. Event recorded data, which is a bit like a black box in a plane So it captures a lot of this data. So if anything does go wrong, if there is an accident or something like that, then we can get a hold of that data. There are 128 CCTV cameras on every Waratah train. Some of those are internal and external. So they're generating an enormous amount of video data. And then there's lots of subsystem data. So each, a lot of the subsystems collect their own data. So the air conditioning units, the power units, the doors. So there's a lot of data actually on the train itself. And we get some of that. Sometimes we get all of that data from the train and some of that data is only available on request. They're only working over a 3G network at the moment, so there's just not the capacity to pull all of that data all the time. So we have to be a bit selective about the data that we need to get. In terms of data that's of the train, so that's being generated about the train but not coming from the train itself, So we have things like you know, wheel impact data. So if a train has got a bit of a flat spot on its wheel as it's driving past, it's going to you know, be generating forces on the track That are not normal compared to a wheel that might be nice and smooth. There's bearing and brake temperature data so we can tell if the uh, temperatures of the bearings and the brakes are correct. Sometimes brakes can get too hot but also sometimes brakes can get too cold if they're not engaging enough or maybe if the pad's fallen off or something like that. So so we want to be able to spot what we call hot and cold brakes. There's bearing acoustic monitoring so listening to the sounds as a train goes past that can give us a lot of clues as to what might be going wrong on a train. And Dan has been collecting this data, certainly um, not, all of the, not all of those data sources, but a lot of those data sources we've been collecting for about eight years. And that amounts to be about 1.2 petabytes of data each year, or 157 trillion data points. That's just the TOS data, but we've also got logged events and other things like that as well. So this really is a, a massive amount of data. And of course, the collection of data is becoming more and more common there's a lot more data in the world now with fast wi-fi and and sensors being cheap and there's a lot of organizations capturing a lot of that data and so the the challenge is to try and extract the value from that data
0: now i want to dwell into that a little bit especially with 5g with H and NAD, as you were saying that we are collecting so much so much data now the question i have for you is when you guys were starting um given that you have already collected so much data A lot of times what I found working with the team or the technical team is that is always the temptation to say, well, we got so much data and they are all important. We got to use all of them. And we also got to do all these crazy things. We got to do all these fancy things. But that itself is creating a new challenge, i.e. you try to be too fancy, trying to make too much of the complication and that itself i think is sort of like remind me it leads to your mantra is that it could lead to a failure because it's almost like the saying: try to learn how to walk before you learn how to run so my question for you is how did you resist that temptation how did you convince the both the business and the technical team i think to some extent this sort of thing could come from the business team because they don't necessarily understand the underlying challenges when you are trying to do too much thing at one point. So how did you convince them to resist that temptation not to overkill it and not to try to use so much data that they say, we got it. Why are we not using it?
1: <laughs> yeah, look, I think you're right. Understanding expectations and working out what data to keep and what data to, to not keep are quite difficult challenges and really trying to understand the priority of the tasks that you should be working on and which data is the data that provides the most value and that's really where our team working with the amc guys the, the end users where we really talk to them to really try and help to define that problem that that issue i was talking about earlier defining the right problem and it might be a really interesting academic problem to solve, but if it doesn't provide value to the business, then you know we should probably be focusing on something else. And then the business might say, well, we've got this really valuable problem that we want you to solve, but then we might find that actually, hang on, we don't have the data to solve that problem. So there can be a bit of back and forth to try and work out what problem should be solved and what data do we need for it. And sometimes if it's a really important problem, and you don't have the data for it, then you may even start talking about adding more sensors to collect the data that you need for that. They're not easy problems to solve to try and manage those expectations. The data's there; just go solve all my problems. You know, <laughs> it's it, yeah. Expectations do need to be managed, and working out what data you're going to keep and how you're going to use it are definitely things that need to be considered very carefully.
0: So the, the whole trainee a project it really helps to prolong the lifetime of the asset and extending it. If we could double it effectively, I presume we save a cut already. Now, in terms of the number, you can choose not to talk about it if this is a trade secret, but how much do you think it is saving the New South Wales government? And it is saving the taxpayer?
1: Yeah. yeah. Maybe before I answer that question, so I've, I've told you a little bit in terms of talking about what trained DNA is, I've spoken a lot about the data. But if it's okay, I'd like to talk a bit more about how it does what it does. So the goal is to try and ensure that the right information is given to the right people at the right time. And obviously, we're trying to make a difference to the bottom line. So how it does that is through a few different mechanisms. There's obviously just simply visualizing data can be useful. You know, someone just wants to look to see how a battery current has changed over the last six months can be useful. Generating alerts in real time. So for the people who are running the... Assets on the day of operation, getting an understanding of what needs to be addressed as soon as possible, what's going on on the network right now is important, but also identifying anomalies. So it might not necessarily be an alert, but if something is behaving a little bit out of the ordinary, then that can also be useful to highlight to end users. And that's really useful On a train network where, say, you've got 78 Waratah trains, they're all about the same age, they're all supposed to be generating the same sort of data, they're all operating in similar conditions. So if one of those trains is doing something a little bit different, then sometimes that's worth investigating. And also we want to try and predict failures. We want to write those algorithms that are going to predict when the conditions and the timing of when something's going to go wrong. So there are three main sort of audiences, if you like, that train DNA is catered for. So there are those people those operations staff who want to know what's going on on the network right now so these are the you know they want to know about the alerts they're the um the guys sitting in the integrated operations center they've got screens up with dark screens on them because they're on all the time and they're in this room you know 24/7 and they don't care about the business rules or the graphs or the algorithms they just want to know what train has an issue and what do they need to do about it and they need to be able to find out with no more than 3 clicks and so there's a map that shows where all the trains are on the network and it shows the alerts on the screen. And then if you click on an alert, it will take you through to the train view, which lists all the alerts for that train. And then you can examine those faults in more detail. If you click on an alert, then it will give you a snapshot of that failure mode with recommended actions. So there's your three clicks. But if they want more detail, they can go into that as well, just in case they want to investigate a bit further to sort of get more context. So that's one of the three, the operation stuff. The second sort of target audience, if you like, are the fleet engineers, And they help the technicians to maintain the trains. So if something is happening in one train, they might want to see if it's happening to other trains as well. So can they, they want to be able to look at trends across all the trains, you know, what are all the internal temperatures of the train across the whole fleet, you know, and just to see if there are any sort of underlying trends there on on a fleet level. And what sort of defensible actions should they do or shouldn't they do as a result of understanding that fleet in more detail? So that's the second group. And then there's the third group, which are the design engineers uh, to try and help them to identify faults. And so there are three types of design engineers, if you like. You know, there's, there's the people who can write code. So there are some quite clever people at the AMC and they can write Python. So they can go straight into the databases and write their own machine learning algorithms if they want to. There are people who don't want to write any code at all, but they're happy to make BI dashboards. And then there are people who don't want to build dashboards and they don't want to write code but they understand the data really, really well. They just want to be able to, you know, do a query on a particular signal, put in the signal name and put in some dates and visualize that data to understand what's going on. And this this allows them to see, you know, say logged events on a map as well. So the logged events on the map can try and help to identify if say there's an issue that implies an infrastructure issue. So for example, if there's a voltage spike on a train, if it's happening all around the network, then there's probably something wrong with the train. But if lots of trains are having an issue in one particular part of the network, then maybe there's something wrong with the infrastructure somehow. So these are the sort of the three types of groups that we're trying to cater for. And that's that's really sort of what train DNA is trying to achieve, I guess.
0: Right. Now, when you were talking about the engineer with diagnosis and looking at the data and the diagnosis, the problem, I suppose the question I have for you, that is, do you have a mechanism to allow the engineer to input the diagnosis that they come out, so that you are able to build up this brain or this engine or AI so that the next time when the similar issue again and it hit all the signal, it becomes faster and faster to be able to identify what the problem is. Yeah,
1: no, very good question. It's not at that level yet, but it's certainly their ideas that we've spoken about quite a lot. So, the idea would be, say, for example, if a particular fault happens on a train and there's a work order submitted to fix that fault, then if we can extract that information from the work order once it's finished, and they can say, oh, look, you know, it was a faulty sensor, then the next time that fault happens again, then we can start to produce some recommendations. So if 80% of the time it's a faulty sensor, if 10% of the time it's a faulty component, and if there's something else wrong the rest of the time, then the person who has to actually fix the train could then say, well, every time this happens, 80% of the time it's a faulty sensor, I'll start by looking at that. And so getting that feedback, a loop is certainly something that we've been thinking about just to help sort of hone in on likely causes of problems.
0: I think that probably leads to the question i have prepared for you later on but uh, before that i want to ask you though is that what do you think is the biggest business challenge in this project
1: yeah so there's been lots of challenges on multiple levels we sort of touched on this one a little bit earlier setting expectations so just because we've got lots of data doesn't mean we can solve every problem and even when we talk about oh we're doing analytics and some people think, oh, you know, we're doing data analytics, we should be able to, you know, solve a lot of problems. But certainly, in my view, the data analytics doesn't solve the problem, it defines the problem, it generates the insights. The analytics results themselves don't actually provide any value unless they're acted upon. You need some kind of actionable outcome. So you still need some way of solving the problem or extracting the value. And sometimes that's really simple. Oh, we've got this insight that there's a faulty component. So then someone just submits a work order and they need to send a technician out and fix it. Okay, so that's that's an actionable insight and that's where you, then you can provide the value. But also another way to provide that value is through optimization. So if your insights are very complex and if you're predicting, let's just say that you've got 100 trains on the network and you're predicting that you know each of them are going to have 10 faults in the next month, then that's 1,000 faults that you need to deal with in the next month. What's the best way to address that? How do you prioritize that? When should you bring your trains in for service? Which faults should you address when? So that's when you can start to develop, you know, an optimized maintenance schedule, if you like. And that's really where you can start to extract a lot of value as well. And also to try and sort of communicate that, you know, it's really an analytics platform like this. It's a journey of discovery. Sometimes we have people saying, oh, okay, we've got this problem. We want you to tell us how long you're going to take to solve it and what's the value going to be out of it. But really we need to start by understanding, well, what data do we have? And because it's a bit of a journey of discovery, it's it's like a research and development project. Sometimes you might look at the data and you might say, look, there's nothing in this data that we can use that's actually going to help us to predict this problem, so we can't really provide much value at all. Sometimes, you know, you might need to try three or four different approaches and then you discover an approach that does work but it's not a hard and fast, well-defined space to work in. It's definitely a journey of discovery that does have that research component, so it's less predictable than, say, a lot of other types of projects that the people would be used to working with. One of the other challenges that we have is it's a very conservative environment. So you can put 2,000 people on a train, okay? So any changes that you want to make, obviously it's a very safety-critical environment, and the changes that need to be made in, in this highly regulatory environment need to be approved And often the people approve the decisions, they're not the ones who benefit from it. So you've got someone who's responsible for the safety of the people on the train and you want to make a decision so that you can change your maintenance regime. And they're going to say, well, I can understand why you want to change your maintenance regime to a condition-based maintenance because that's going to save you money. But I don't get any benefit from that. I'm not the one spending money maintaining the trains. And if I make this decision and something goes wrong, Everyone's gonna point the finger at me. So it's a very difficult environment to make changes in. And it's also very political. Obviously, if there's a train crash, it's gonna be on the front page of the papers. So it's quite a conservative environment and difficult to make changes in. Some of the other challenges is what we touched on before. There's that just the sheer volume of data. Getting data both internally and externally can be quite a time consuming process. Even just working out, you know, who's responsible for the data and getting a hold of that data can be difficult. The volumes of the data. High volumes obviously have higher costs and longer retrieval times. And we were talking before about which data do you want to keep? And sometimes it's tempting to say you want to keep it all because you don't know what problems you're going to have in the future. And if you want to train your AI models, you need historical data to sort of go back in time and and find those patterns. But sometimes holding all that data is probably a bit of an overkill. Maybe you just need to keep six months worth or something like that. And some of that data can be quite high frequency as well. Deciding what data to keep and what data not to keep is not a trivial question to answer we're often working with legacy systems as well that are also using some of this data so we need to work out how to work with that those legacy systems and also work out how to share that data we're often accessing data in ways that it wasn't originally designed for so for example a lot of the data that's on the train was designed to be accessed on request So the engineers will say, oh, something's happened on the train, we want to go and access this data from this subsystem and analyse it, and I might get the last seven days' worth of data or something like that. But we want to be able to make sort of more automated decisions, so we actually want to collect all the data from the train 24 hours a day, and sometimes the infrastructure, the IT infrastructure, just can't cope because it wasn't designed for that. And trying to get data in a timely way so that you can do real-time alerts versus longer-term predictions where the timeliness of the data isn't quite so critical. There's lots of different data sources Ensuring that you have the right data is also important. And so we touched on that before a little bit with maybe you need to add more sensors. Also, another interesting issue that's becoming more and more of an issue, I think, and that maybe sort of be underestimated by by people who are new to this, is the idea of data ownership. If you consider a train that's built by Downer and it's operated by Sydney Trains, and the train has got lots of subcomponents, so let's just say we're talking about the doors, okay? So there's a door... There's a component on the door that's responsible for opening the door, and that component collects data about the door. So you might be really interested in how long does it take for this door to open and close, and is the current required to open and close it, increasing over time? That could be a clue that something's going wrong, okay? So who owns that data? The manufacturer of that door component might say that they own the data because they made the door component. And downer might say, well, we made the train, so we own the data we made the train and we maintain the train. So we own the data, we're the ones who use it. And Sydney trains might say, well, we bought the trains, so we own the data. So data ownership and who can do what with what data can actually be a real challenge. And people are recognizing more and more the value in data. So they're starting to try and control it more than they used to. So I would sort of recommend to people that are looking at going down this path especially if you're in the early stages and you're still in the process of writing contracts and defining your assets we're going to give a lot of thought to that data ownership problem and and who can do what with it because if you go into it a bit blindly you might get some nasty surprises a bit later on and we spoke about it a little bit earlier in terms of the problem definition so we're not necessarily out to just solve interesting academic problems, but we want to identify useful problems that are going to provide value to the business. And then we need to educate the business to become aware of the types of problems that can be addressed. So we need to say, well, we know that you're used to sort of thinking in this space and solving problems in this way. But now that we've got this, you know, extra capability, try and think a bit broader, take a few steps back and and try and imagine some of the other types of problems that we might be able to solve. And then there's usual issues with getting buy-in from stakeholders. Sometimes it's easy for stakeholders to look at the short-term benefits and miss the long-term benefits, and I can talk a little bit about that a little bit later on, and then ensuring that the business actually has enough confidence to use the results that we give them. So there's a lot of smart people in the maintenance centres. They have a lot of experience, and some of them are quite conservative and quite rightly so because it's because of the environment that they're working in. So making sure that any insights that we give them are defensible and easy for them to understand and that they have enough confidence in them that they'll actually turn them into actions that provide value.
0: I think the issue that you mentioned about the data ownership is quite an interesting one, especially because it involves multiple parties that are not related to each other. It's not like the multiple internal party. That is probably something that I have never came across. So I have to say it's really interesting. It got me to think a lot, as you were rightly pointing out, that. As everyone is realizing the value of the data, now everyone is trying to monetize it. And because of that, people are just going to start putting value. And that seemed to be translating into the contract, the legal contract, i.e., if you want to use it, you got to pay X dollars of that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think
1: it's something that a lot of people don't think about and they can be caught by it.
0: Yeah. Now, the messaging from Downer indicated that this is an early stage deployment of this trained DNA. And I think you probably touched on a little bit about this earlier on already, like for example, building the loop into the analytics, having a conscious decision in terms of the design of the platform. So I suppose those are the two things that you have in plan for the later on to further build on the, this trained DNA. Apart from that, what the future holds for this trained DNA platform,
1: yeah, certainly. So the amount of data that we have is vast. So I've already touched on that. And we're still really just scratching the surface in terms of what value we can get out of those 30,000 signals. There's still a lot of research to be done in that space. We're continuing to work with the maintainers of the trains and the engineers to identify new problems and pain points. So that's the sort of process that iterative process that we could go on with for quite a while as we extract more and more value from that data so certainly for for trained dna as a platform i think i think the overall structure of it in terms of the layout and the screens and the types of data that we're collecting i think that's mature enough that we can actually just keep doing what we're doing for a while to extract more and more value as we explore the data more
0: that's great stuff. Do you think we can expect a nationwide implementation of train DNA or similar capability for other states, so that not just the New South Wales resident and the New South, yeah, yeah sure. the Sydney taxpayer is enjoying this kind sort of benefit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. Look, definitely the because Dana is already operating in quite a few different states. So Train DNA will be used with the HCMT trains that are being rolled out in Melbourne. And Downer certainly does have a rolling stock capability in different states as well. So it's possible that it could get some exposure there as well, although I've not heard a lot of people talking in that space just yet. And we think that there are lots of different businesses that could Still apply both within Downer and outside of Downer that could have benefit from a platform like this. So even in the mining space and the, and the, the cleaning space, the spotless, and even uh, like for example Queensland Rail or, or Pacific National, you know, different different rolling stock services outside of Downer could also benefit from using a tool like this. That's it's very generic, and there are very similar types of problems that are trying to be solved.
0: I think this is probably what the Rio Tinto or the BHP currently or have been doing over the last two years. Now, if other business leaders who are listening to this podcast who have got the roving stock asset where they are thinking, or in the manufacturing, I know I spoke to a guy, he is in the manufacturing, they wanted to use the data and analytics to prolong the lifetime of the asset. What would be the advice that you would give to them? Number one, Number two is what sort of uh, financial numbers they could expect to achieve so that they have a case to the bot and say, this is what they need to be start doing and considering.
1: So the first bit of advice I'd give them would be to come and talk to me and buy trained DNA. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Good idea, yes.
1: (laughs) But look, certainly I think some of the issues that they would want to consider is, you know, what's the potential value or the prize that they're going for and how long do you have? So we've been working with, on TrainDNA for, for two years now and we are extracting value from it, but it did take a while to get to that point. So if you've only got six months to realise value and it's going to take two years to build a platform, then maybe that's not the right direction or maybe you need to de-scope the platform a bit so you can get something done a bit quicker. I'd also keep in mind those comments earlier that it is a, it is a journey of discovery. It's, the business will often want to say, how much money is this going to save me? And the answer is, we don't know. You know, not until we've looked into the data more and we understand the problems more. We don't know what insights we can extract from the data until we've had a look at it, till we analyse it, till we've done that analytics. So you kind of need, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg kind of situation. So the things like, you know, making sure you can define your problems, getting hold of the data and, and getting the right data for the problems you're trying to solve, making sure that that data is good quality. If it's an environment where you're going to be relying on an alerting system some kind of real-time alerts to operate smoothly from day to day, then you want to make sure you're working in a robust environment. If it's something where you're just looking at doing predictive alerts that you might run each night to work out what's going to happen today or or in a week's time, then the environment that you're going to be operating in might need to be quite as robust. You need to make sure that you're getting your tool integrated into your processes and used by your people. It's not just the need to have the people, the process, and the tools are working together. There's no point in having the, the best tool in the world if no one's going to use it. Really need to communicate the right message with the others in the team to bring them along the journey with you. And also something else is you might need to consider adding some additional skill sets to your staff. You might need more people that can maybe program or do some of that data analytics capability. Obviously, those sorts of skills are required for a platform like this and often organisations are are short on those types of skills. In terms of the sorts of potential savings that you could get from something like this, so if I give you an example of Downer with the Sydney trains, the Waratah trains and and the SGTs, so there's about 100 trains there and we're going to be operating those trains for about 35 years in total and each train is obviously worth several millions of dollars. But if we were to just consider one component on that train it could be a power unit it could be a hvac unit it could be a, a bogie. so the bogies are the, the things that hold the wheels on the bottom of the train and the brakes and the suspension so there's lots of different components on these trains and those components are obviously worth quite a lot so if we were to pick a component that's say worth between 200 and 300 each to replace and let's just say that four of them are on a train there may be you know, so the trains in sydney The Waratah and the SGTs, they have eight carriages. So maybe there's four of these components on a train. So that would mean to replace all four of them would cost you about a million dollars. Okay. Now, if you've got a train fleet with about 100 trains, then to replace all these components across all the trains is going to cost you about a hundred million dollars. And each of these components has got an expected lifetime. And so some of these components, it might be typical to say that we would expect to replace this component four times in a 35-year lifespan. So if you're going to replace each of those components four times, then that's $400 million you're going to spend or that you're planning to spend to replace all those components across that 35-year period. Now, if you can understand the health of that component better and you can be more proactive or at least react faster when things start to go wrong then you could really significantly increase the life of that asset. And if instead of replacing it four times over 35 years, you only end up replacing it three times, then that's a $100 million saving. And we're just talking about one component on the train, and there's lots of components on the train. So the potential savings for something like this, certainly from Downer's perspective, could be well over $500 million over a 35-year period. And we're just talking about the Waratah and SGT trains. We've got lots of other or the HCMT trains and coming online as well. So so the potential savings, understanding that long-term game, if you like, can be very, very significant. And, and it might even be that you may need to spend more on your condition-based maintenance in the short term to ensure the much bigger prize at the end it's a bit like you know servicing your car. If you service your car a lot more frequently, you might spend more on servicing, but then you don't need to buy another car for you know a much longer period of time. But it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes just servicing smarter and schedule, putting those schedules in in, in a more condition-based way rather than a just a regular planned maintenance kind of way, can reduce both your servicing cost and increase your asset life. So getting visibility of the health of your assets and extending their life is really where where your mindset should be at. I think.
0: And not to forget about the stress that comes with it when those assets, those train are down and not working where the people have to run around and get them organized, get them fixed, and then get them up and running again. So those are the things that is sometimes very hard to put a number, but uh, it's super important. Now, it almost come to the end. I uh, want to move away talking about the train DNA but uh, I want to talk a little bit about your side project, Mappypedia. Tell us a bit more about the Mapypedia.
1: Yeah, so Mappypedia is just a hobby of mine, a bit of a side project. So I have a passion for data analytics, obviously, and visualization. So I wanted to create a platform that would make it easy for people to share and understand their data. So if I was going to try and describe what it is in a nutshell, it would be like Wikipedia but for geospatial data. So it's a platform that's designed to display data in a geospatial time series way, which sounds very complicated, but really it just means if you had a map of the world and you were, say, tracking population, you could change the colours of those countries over time as population changes. But that data if it's in the right format then the same sort of data could represent lots of different things instead of those numbers representing populations it could be coronavirus cases or it could be car sales it could be you know, stamp collecting or facebook users it could be anything and so i think that there's there are lots of people that have got Access to good data, but it's not always easy to visualize it and get insights from it. But also to share it with other people. So it is a platform where you can upload data, and you can either control the privacy of it. So if you are an organisation who wants to track your car sales around the world and you don't want people to see it, then you can keep it private. But if you are um, passionate about something, you can put it up there and allow other people to see it and to comment on it. And there's a social media component as well, so they can like it and follow it. So if you're passionate about a particular issue say domestic violence and there's a reputable source that's updating a a page about domestic violence you could get alerts whenever that data has been updated and there's also a search capability in there it's different to wikipedia in that only the owner of the page can edit it once you create your page you have complete control over it there are other pages out there there are other websites out there that do have some good data sets and they display it quite well but I think the why of the data is often missing from these sets. So they'll show you a life expectancy graph or they'll show you some other interesting data with lots of graphs. And you'll see a dip in the graph and you'll say, well, why did that graph happen? You know, what? why did that dip happen? What's the why behind the data, not just the what of the data? So Mapypedia also helps you to, to understand or, or to enter the why of the data. And then when people look at it, they can get more insights. So, for example, there is a life expectancy page there. And whenever there's a dip in a country's life expectancy, it usually corresponds to the war or a disease or a famine or something like that. So I've got all these events in there to say, okay, so this dip corresponds to the Rwandan genocide or the AIDS epidemic or something like that. So it just sort of helps to provide a lot more context to that data and and makes it easy to share. I recently just added the ability for people to be able to drag and drop their geotagged photos. So if you take a photo on your camera and you have the GPS data, the location data settings turned on your phone, then you can just drag and drop your photos onto the Mapypedia page and it will show you basically a holiday. If you've been on a holiday or if you've been taking photos of every cafe that you've been to or something like that, it'll um, bring them all up on a map and animate it around so you can easily describe your journey with someone else. So rather than sharing 60 pages of your holiday and having to explain where all those photos were taken, the map will just automatically show people.
0: That's amazing. What plans do you have for Muppypedia in the future?
1: Yeah, good question. So I, I actually launched the beta version of the photo mapping only yesterday, so it's very, very new, just on on Y Combinator, just to sort of try and get some initial feedback. And so that had about 15,000 user actions in less than 24 hours. That was quite a good response. But at this stage, it's still just a side project, just like a hobby, I guess, just sort of tinkering with it and continuously improving it. It would be good if at some point it did generate some revenue and then I could justify spending more time on it. But I'm not much of a salesperson, so I'm not sure if it's ever going to get to that point. (laughs) I'm very much a technical person and I like tinkering.
0: (laughs) So it sounds like it's a little bit more of a B to C product. I saw that that is a pricing page where basically people can say, hey, I want to use this one and I pay $5 a month, et cetera. I suppose understanding users' especially that you're not a salesperson, but why and how people should be paying you to use this product Then maybe is a good page to the people to come and use this Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs)
1: No, no, thanks for the question. So you can do a lot with a free account or you can even share your photos with no account at all and then the photos will expire after 30 days. But really the paid options are really for people who want to have more control over the privacy of their data or if they're wanting to share a lot more data to sort of cover some of those server costs. But you can do quite a lot without having to spend any money at all. So you can create public pages on the Mapypedia site for free For the data pages, not the photo mapping pages, but for the data pages, you can do quite a lot for free there. And also, the the photo mapping pages have have got some pretty good free options as well. But if you were an organization that wanted to map data, if you needed an easy way to map data and have some control over the privacy, then that's what the subscription options are for.
0: Wonderful. I hope to see you as one of the graduates from the Y Combinator. (laughs) Now, we're almost coming to the end of this interview, and I'm going to ask you my first usual question what is your most important first principle
1: yeah look this is probably a bit of a cliche but it's i think it's the kiss principle so keep it simple stupid i think um a lot of the times people get caught up in the sexiness of ai and machine learning and they've got a data problem to solve and they'll go and jump straight into all these really complex approaches but i think you need to be careful not to jump to the complex without considering the simple first and they might not be as sexy but Simple approaches can still provide quite a lot of value. Often simpler approaches are easier to communicate and so for your end users to understand and getting confidence from your end users is very important.
0: I mean, I couldn't agree anymore. I really want to anchor on that. I mean, if this come from the data scientists who build the training of all the sexy stuff that we just talked about and has got a PhD in AI... It's still spot on, like don't get carried away by all the sexy stuff and jumping in and straight away start the tensor for algorithm, things like that. <laughs> now, instead of asking my one last question that I usually ask, I want to move away from that today because you are a data scientist, you are an engineer. I'm going to test this question on you. You are the very first one who, who get this. What is the most outrageous idea that you have that you wish to be implemented in this world? Or you think that it is good to have it be implemented? (laughs) I have quite a few. I'm happy to share that, but I'll let you go first.
1: (laughs) So I often come up with lots of stupid ideas. I don't know that I'm going to necessarily answer your question directly, but I'll share this idea anyway. So I've got a couple of ideas. One of them is, you know, a couple of outrageous statements, but I'll try and sort of back one of them up. So one of them would be why there could be alien technology on Earth right now, literally, interstellar alien technology, but I won't go into that one right now. But I will go into another outrageous statement, which is why heavenly angels will need a Facebook account in the future. (laughs) So that's my outrageous statement. And now I will try and provide some kind of crazy logic to back that up a little bit. If you're a religious person and you believe in the Bible there are passages in the Bible which says that there are angels that are walking around on earth as people, but you can't tell that they're angels because they're described as people. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the direction in which technology is heading. And if you look at the introduction of 5G, so wireless speeds are much faster, people are wearing a lot more internet-connected devices on their bodies, and part of that is our internet-connected cameras, and obviously our smartphones as well. And so if you can imagine that And I think this technology is already with us, and if it's not, it's not very far away. You can imagine walking around with some kind of augmented reality headset on, and as you're walking down the street, it's doing some kind of real-time facial recognition and then providing some kind of display above each person's head with all the publicly available data. It could be a little bit like, you know, the Terminator walking around investigating all these people and getting information on them. So if you can imagine walking down the street with these augmented reality glasses on, and each person that you see in real time is doing a facial recognition and then pulling up all this publicly available data from your public digital footprint. So it could be from Facebook, it could be from LinkedIn or from wherever. And you'll be able to find out all this information about people as you're walking down the street. However, if you happen to be a heavenly angel walking down the street, if you do not have a digital footprint, there won't be anything appearing above your head and you're going to stand out like a sore thumb because everyone's going to have a digital footprint. So uh, if you truly want to be a heavenly angel walking around anonymously, you're going to have to have a Facebook account or some kind of digital footprint.
0: Well, with the way that how Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg is conquering the world, I think... The Heavenly Angel will have no choice but to have a Facebook account and probably, in fact, will have to join quite a few Facebook groups. I have no <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Why stop at Conquering Earth? Yeah.
0: <laughs> now thank you so much, David, for sharing with us all this amazing technology, data science that you guys do at Downer for the New South Wales taxpayer. I'm envy. So uh, I hope the Department of Transport in queensland and i know from the statistics of my podcast i know i have quite a lot of audience coming from the state and uk as well please do me a favor come and buy train dna and implement it so thank you so much for sharing this
1: yeah thank you very much for
0: having me it's been a real pleasure